Welcome to Sustainable Horizons, where we take a deep dive into various sustainability topics and then talk with industry professionals who are working to solve those exact problems. We're your hosts, Taylor and Logan. Now let's learn how to face the future. Welcome back, everybody. We have the pleasure of talking with Charles today, the founder and CEO of Hemp Acres. For the past seven years, Charles has immersed himself in the world of hemp, learning about hemp's history, nutritional properties, and sustainable nature. He's learned how to grow it, how to process it, and its innumerable applications. He is one of the first licensed hemp growers and the first licensed hemp processor in the state of Minnesota. Charles has built Hemp Acres from the ground up on a farm in Waconia, Minnesota. Now Hemp Acres is the largest wholesale producer of grain, botanical extracts, and fiber ingredients in the nation. Hemp Acres is on a mission to widely introduce hemp back into the American market. So thank you so much for joining us, Charlie. And this is my co-host, Logan. Hi, it's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I guess we'll dive right in. What is your educational background? How did you get into kind of this world? What was your journey? So I've always been surrounded with agriculture growing up. And but my background is in uh, electrical construction, engineering, project management. So I was always farming as I was little and wanted to, it was my passion, but have a background in electricity. Okay, very cool. So what got you inspired to start Hemp Bakers? Well, hemp became legal in 2016. And before that, I was going to start a hard cider operation and planted a whole bunch of apple trees and I was keeping bees at the same time. So yeah, as as I started evolving on the farm to build a food facility, yeah, hemp became legal the following year and I hadn't made any purchases in, in the uh, cider business. So yeah, it was a perfect timing and just decided that this was more of an opportunity to, to be involved in the hemp space. Very cool. Yeah, no, I, it was super cool to see your facility and check it out. You've kind of a big operation down in Waconia. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how it started on your small farm and how you grew to kind of the warehouse you have now and how that process came to be? Yeah. So, you know, as hemp was illegal for almost 80 years in in the U.S. and um, no infrastructure at all. And so uh, everything from growing it to processing it all had to be learned from the ground up and the farm was a good incubator to to start all this and so yeah to start it learning how to grow it and how to process it on a real small scale which was very important for us before we got the orders and got more of the demand to scale everything up so we did that for a few years before we moved into our large facility in town could you kind of talk a little bit about what exactly hemp is, kind of why it gets associated with marijuana, and then also kind of the individual parts of the hemp plant. Sure. So hemp is part of cannabis sativa genome, as is marijuana. So the legal definition part of the farm bill was anything that was under 0.3% THC. That was arbitrarily defined as and basically all cannabis plants will produce cannabinoids and there's different varieties and genetic types of hemp that 
or cannabis in general that will grow really short, grow really tall for fiber varieties, grow for more flower production and yield different levels of cannabinoids and terpenes and stuff like that. And then ones that will are specifically grown for for seed, for food production, or for fiber production. So there's a whole wide range of genetics that can exist in the cannabis plant. How does your company promote sustainability in its operation and products? I know that hemp itself is a very sustainable plant in the fact of like how it's grown and the ability to use a lot less water than, say, corn or other more traditional farm products like that. How do you guys think about sustainability in your operation? Like you said, hemp is just already very sustainable. So the mere fact of having a business that what we do, we are inherently sustainable. So the, you know, when we're growing varieties uh, for fiber or grain production, the end use of those ingredients and the applications they serve will be, you know, have sustainable applications. So like the herd for hempcrete, you know, that the, the life of that hempcrete block is carbon negative and is environmentally friendly throughout its lifetime. So if it can pull CO2 out over, you know, a hundred years of a life of a house, that's a sustainable application. Same thing as like all of the plant-based foods that we make, whether it's proteins or oils or stuff like that, has a carbon story with it for its sequestration, even after just growing. And then when it's growing in the field, for example, like a taller variety in 100 days will absorb about five tons of CO2 per acre. So it is uh, wow. a huge carbon sink just growing as well. And it grows so fast. That too. A couple other numbers that I found was kind of more on the water side was hemp as compared to cotton. You know, most of our clothes are made of cotton. Sure. Is a 100% cotton t-shirt uses 2,700 liters of water to produce. While that same amount of usable fiber from hemp would only use 5% of that. And then in the similar vein, in relation to corn for uh, like fuel, we use corn a lot for fuel and food, hemp uses 66% less water than corn. Yep. It's crazy. Yeah. There's, yeah. So, like when it's growing there, like, you know, the also like the lack of use of pesticides and herbicides and, you know, lower amounts of fertilizer and there's a lot of sustainable aspects of it. I mean, it is the weed of all weeds. That's why it's called wheat. <laughs> so I was just going to make that pun. You beat me to it. <laughs> it. It grows very well. So if you had any like issues with getting farmers to grow it based on like kind of like the negative connotation with marijuana and hemp, even though it is a very sustainable product and something they kind of I would imagine have to do less with and like corn with spraying pesticides and watering and stuff like that. Yeah, that's challenging. Um, You know, it's a new crop. So trying to get farmers to do anything new is difficult, (laughs) but bigger is just kind of like the price of commodities where other like corn and beans are at their all time high. So it's very hard to get people in our area to switch um, with the current market. And I suppose hemp doesn't get any subsidies like the corn and beans market does. Oh no, that's a great point. A <laughs> lot of lot of hurdles, you know, license, background checks, inspections, things that would never exist in any other crop. 
I didn't even realize that you would have yeah. a background check for the farmers to grow it. Yes. Oh my. Well, I'm sure. How how often do they come and test the THC levels in the plants? Uh, just once at harvest. And that's the other thing too. Is like a lot of the varieties, um, all of the varieties that we're contracting with our farmers produce basically almost immeasurable amounts of cannabinoids. So it's really silly to even test varieties that, you know, Canada's had 25 years of proven records that these genetics don't need to be tested for cannabinoids. Right. Got it. just behind. So what exactly is your role specifically? Are you more of the farmer side or are you more on like kind of the processing side? Do you do both? We farm a little bit for like our cannabinoid production. And we'll be doing some fiber cultivation this year as well. But we contract out, you know, thousands of acres with farmers across the Midwest. And so our goal is more on the processing side where we buy those commodities and process them at scale to sell as ingredients to a whole multitude of, you know, other businesses and different wholesale applications. How, how do you see uh, the hemp industry growing in the next five years? And what's kind of hemp acres role in that, do you think? Definitely think that it's kind of a little bit of an exponential growth in this space. There are more and more applications that are getting a lot of attraction. I mean, New York Times just did an article about hempcrete, showed all of the use cases around the world where hempcrete's being used and said that in the next five years, it'll be a standard common building material, hempcrete blocks or hempcrete applications. So that's just like one use case. So is that like concrete made of hemp? Yeah, essentially. So hempcrete is basically the hemp herd, which is the inner part of the stock mixed with lime and water. And like a a one foot thick block will have almost an R40 insulation value and fire retardant and carbon negative. So it's an incredible building material. And that's just like one use case of thousands of other biodegradable plastics too is a big one. And uh, insulation, and you can make super capacitors from the fiber that that outperform lithium ion by 20%. So you can make batteries from hemp as well. So there are... uh, there's a lot of bigger bio-based solutions that the plant has, which I think are, will really you know, come about in, over the next five to 10 years. Yeah, I'll be honest. When I've heard of like hemp, you, know, you always hear like they have, it can do this, it can do that. And every time I hear something can do these 10,000 different things, I'm like, mm, red flag. But the more I've learned about it, it's hemp just has so many parts to it with the stock that has all the fibers and the, the buds with the oils, and correct me if I get any of this stuff wrong. Um, but yeah, it's, there's just all these different parts of the plant that can do all these different things. And so it's really cool to like see how they can actually apply to all these industries. Yeah, it's truly like a, a miracle plant. Yeah, it's it's incredible. It's I know you think it's like too good to be true, but you look at these applications and I mean, it's it's real. So And there's other countries that are very far ahead of us in their use cases uh, and building permits and, you know, stuff that, again, we're just, we're just behind the ball. So I'm excited to see how it all come, you know, plays out in the next five to 10 years and, and 
kind of the leaps and bounds we can improve if you look back at where the iPhone was 10 years ago to where it is now. Like, I mean, definitely. It's crazy. Just technology grows so fast. I can see the same happening for the hemp industry. All right. We would like to know how people can get more involved in like the hemp industry, whether that's from a career point of view or how we can like kind of help hemp grow and become a more prominent product on the market. It's another good pun. Yeah, I it's you know, it's a it's a lot of work to build an industry from scratch. I always use the analogy what did the corn and soybean market look like 80 years ago? Because there was, you know, there was nothing. There was no market trade for for grain or or the uses and and you can see like, you know, in soy and corn, look at how many products contain those now. So the biggest the biggest hurdle from when I first got in this industry was the infrastructure for processing because farmers can grow it. That's the easy part. It's how do you, where does it go and how does it get processed to these ingredients that can then go to other applications. So I think money is the biggest thing, having other bigger industries getting behind this to get the stigma out. And, you know, banking has been an issue still and and insurance has been an issue. Trucking, it, it's slowly starting to to work itself out. But these are still some of the things that we run into. And yeah, I, I I think just even to like with farming for crop insurance, that's a big problem where you still can't really get adequate crop insurance on it. So why would a farmer grow it? Same thing, the license. There's there's just a lot of these hurdles that just need to work itself out. And I think the quickest way to doing that is working with you know bigger businesses that get involved in it. What is the biggest challenge that hemp bakers faces? I guess you've kind of touched on that when it comes to the trucking and banking and insurance and stuff like that. You know, getting more farmers in our area to grow and getting more companies on like the sales side to work with the ingredients. You know, we were working with a lot of big companies and their sales cycle is, you know, one to two years. So that's a long time to wait before you can, you know, get an order. Right. Yeah. It's the growing growing pains of a startup as well as a startup industry. So the double whammy. Yeah. I guess along with the lines of the challenges of, I think kind of around the start of COVID sort of, there was a big blow up of CBD products. How did that impact your business and how does that impact the market and the industry as a whole and kind of the boom and bust nature of that? Yeah, CBD has been a big deterrent to the growth of this industry. A lot of people are basically associating CBD with like hemp seed oil or hemp, you know, hemp oil in general. And when people hear hemp, that's initially where their mind goes. So it's we're almost breaking the cycle of stigma again, saying that like, look at this plant's like so much more than just CBD. So, got it. CBD was definitely a boom and a bust, and I don't think we'll see that in this industry. It's going to take a lot longer for it to grow, but this is really where the the opportunity is, and in, in the plant, it's in the grain and the fiber. What kind of R and D does hemp bakers do? If you are at liberty to say, of course kind of into some of these newer things. I know you talked about hemp batteries and some of these other things I haven't quite heard of yet. Is that something that hemp bakers 
kind of works with on an R&D side? Are you guys focused more on just wholesaling and moving products into other companies' hands so that they can kind of do some of that R&D themselves? So, I mean, definitely both. We're always trying to move the ingredients that we can currently do, but, you know, working on more higher protein concentrations and like, you know, you said the, the batteries and hempcrete and stuff. And this is something that we are doing internally to a capacity and looking to have more outside influence on getting these to launch faster. Can you discuss any partnerships or collaborations your company has formed to further sustainability efforts within the hemp industry or beyond? Nothing at the moment that I can talk to. Can you explain kind of the significance of that 2018 farm bill that allowed hemp to kind of take off and what was driving the creation of that farm bill and where do you think kind of future opening up of legislation may be heading? Yeah, so the 2018 farm bill took hemp as legally defined as under 0.3% THC off of the Controlled Substance Act. So it essentially made it legal nationwide and every state had to adhere to their own type of uh, regulations where, you know, the inspections and stuff like that, it differs from state to state. But that was kind of the catalyst to allowing other, just allowing this industry to really grow and not be a, it doesn't fall under cannabis. It's not illegal anymore. So it still does because it's still all cannabis. And this is what the problem is on the federal level still, because it's still viewed as cannabis sativa. So Really, the only way that it's going to get completely resolved is if cannabis is legal nationwide and we have different rules in place for basically the type of plants that are being grown, what it's being cultivated for. And that would be a smart way to to uh, control and regulate this industry. Because we're going to constantly have issues with cannabinoid production. And you know that's the new bill that passed here where people are making basically synthetic THC from hemp. And it is it is and it isn't synthetic, but it's made in a lab. So instead of it naturally occurring from the plant, a whole bunch of confusion that we'll continue to see until it's legally, all the cannabis plant is, is legal on a federal level. Is there any sort of lobbying that you are a part of, or there's just kind of a larger, of course, for marijuana, but even just on the hemp industry side, you talked about how there's a lot more of a focus on building and the grain aspect. Is there a big push from that end to make the stuff easier? Not so much. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of efforts that could be done, but all of it takes money and resources. So something that we don't have right now. Yeah, lobbying is, you know, an expensive venture for sure for every industry, which is why some do better than others. Mm-hmm. I, I heard this idea that uh, politicians should have to wear NASCAR-style jackets with all their like patches of who's paying them how much money. And like this <laughs> is the bigger the patch, the more money they're taking in. I that, think, is a, that is a good one. I, I think that'd be great. I would love to see that. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. A little peek behind the curtain. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. Okay, well, we've solved at least one thing today. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you joining today. I don't think I have any other questions. Taylor, do you? Yeah, no, this is a pleasure to talk to you and uh, learn a little bit more about the industry and everything. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, definitely. And now it's time for our quarterly, quarterly update. update. 
we nailed that. <laughs> yeah. So totally insane. Yeah. <laughs> did you want to tell people about our quarterly update? Yeah, definitely. So we plan on every three months, a quarter, having these updates where we kind of touch back on the topics we've talked about over the last three months. So this update, we will be talking about marine biology, hemp, even though you just listened to the episode, we have some fun updates for there for you there. And then we're also talking about Green Sport Alliance and kind of sustainability in sports. So Hell yeah. Do you want to just get into hemp and then we'll go from there? Yeah, definitely. So if anybody lives in Minnesota, fun update was that on May 30th, Tim Waltz, our governor, signed the legalization of recreational marijuana. It's been lit. Super fun. <laughs> yep, it has. It officially is legal now here in July when we are recording. And it's been something that kind of the state has had coming for a long time. We legalized edibles a while back, about a year ago, I believe. And so, yeah, this was just kind of the next step in that evolution there. But hemp farmers are not necessarily happy about this bill. Oh, really? uh, Which is unfortunate. Yes. I did not expect that. A lot of farmers, I think, feel like the bill was rushed through and there wasn't enough education on the differences between hemp, CBD, and THC. So a lot of these regulations that they're now putting into play are going across all three industries instead of like just on the THC side. So they're going to put some harder regulations down and the hemp farmers are going to kind of feel that, unfortunately. So some of these regulations that they're putting in place are, and the biggest issue is going to be taxing. Got all taxes. Yeah, <laughs> it tends to be everybody's issue. <laughs> the biggest issue is that it's going to be taxed the same as recreational, regular hemp will be, and that's at a 17%. Oof. Yeah, and that's rough and a little, because I mean, that high tax rate, to my understanding, is usually that sort of like, quote unquote, punishment, kind of like how it is with like tobacco and cigar, like whatever. Very much so. As like, okay, you're going to do the substance, we're going to tax you high. But the whole thing about hemp that we've talked about is hemp is not a drug. It's a fiber and a medicine and... Yep. All these other things. So, oof. Yeah, I can see why they're yes. upset. Yes. Yeah. It's, I mean, comparable to like, if you think, if the cotton industry would be taxed at the same rate as tobacco, it's like that same concept of cotton is not used at all for any of those things and neither is hemp, but hemp is now going to be taxed at the same rate as THC. So that is just unfortunate. But one of the biggest things, and I think we kind of touched, touched on this in our episode is the lack of education surrounding hemp. It's just been kind of this mystery plant to us for a while since it's been banned for so long. And they talk about how the bill ran through 14 or 15 different committees, but there wasn't enough education in those committees and in the community and things like that for these people to understand the difference between all three of them. So that's kind of unfortunate. And another thing that they mention is that they call it big cannabis, similar to big pharma, that there's some bigger industries out of state or companies, I guess, that are growing that are not going to have some of these same regulations, but are going to be able to play in our market. So they're just going to have the advantage of scale because they're just bigger and not, you know, farming on, you know, a thousand acres. And they have the ability that they're doing it out of state. So they're not going to necessarily get some of the same tax crunches that they are here. But Yikes. Well, I hope that the legislature, whomever is in charge of that, can put in those addendums quick. But I mean, as we know with government, it's never quick. No. And and while it's legal here in July, I don't think it's going to be written in stone for about another year or so. So a lot of people are rallying and 
going to lobbyists and really trying to make a, a difference in how the rules and regulations are written when it comes to hemp. I know that I think there's a couple lawsuits out there too, just really trying to get that point across that like it's not the same and you're going to start killing a lot of these like small hemp farmers. And yeah, they've been working since 2018, so the past five years, to build their little industry and they're super proud of the products that they put out and the people that they help through the medicinal uses of hemp and all the other things and CBD. And yeah, they're just a little defeated that it may not be as feasible anymore because of these bigger companies coming in and the unfortunate tax rate that they're going to be taxed at. Welp. <laughs> so, not the super... not well, and, not the super fun update for hemp. It's fun yes, for marijuana. That is true. But it is not so fun for hemp. Yeah. And that's just, it's going to be a constant battle. And I think you will see that a lot in the sustainability world is there's just a lack of education or understanding around a lot of different topics. And unfortunately, that means that we just have to continue to educate people and the masses about what these mean so that we can be- get better policies and, and things in place. I think that's a great point because so often with all these sustainability issues that get put through legislatures, they create unintended consequences because the people making the laws, either they themselves don't know or don't put in the time to learn, and then it creates just different problems. But Yeah, consequences are not always good. Exactly. So hopefully we'll get it figured out. At least weed is legal. So that's good. I also am pretty sure on the people side that they are decriminalizing it. So then... And that's retroactive as well. Yep. Um, so people just weed possession charges are going to be free. So that's huge. And a fun tidbit. I don't know what it is like in other states, but it is legal to grow and possess two pounds of marijuana Ooh. in Minnesota. Two pounds. Damn. I, that's insane. Gotta get that garden going. Just insane. <laughs> no kidding. It's just kind of wild how... Uh, much they're willing to give mm-hmm. you guys. <laughs> I've also found, uh, I don't know about you, it just like it usually with, let's be honest, my mom um, beforehand, she used to always, any topic around weed, she would just kind of turn up her nose at it. Well, and literally, because she doesn't like the smell. But now I've mentioned <laughs> that, oh, I drank a THC seltzer or I did an edible and she doesn't bat an eye on it. And I was like, it's interesting that the legality was your benchmark. Oh, yeah. Also, my mom is definitely going to listen to this episode. So, hi, mom. (laughs) (laughs) I think that sometimes um, that's what... It's the rules, right? Just don't break the rules. And that's that's the whole stick about it. Not necessarily like, sure, it's good for you. But if the cure for cancer was against the rules and we didn't quite know, you know, it was the the cure for cancer, people still wouldn't want you to do it, you know? Yeah. So... All right, uh, on to our next updates. It's, I guess, Logan, what one do you want to dive into first? Do I want to do sports? Yeah, let's do it there. Let's do it. So a couple of things that Brad had talked about was, I guess, first off, is he talked a lot about how he got his start on a green team with the Minnesota Twins. I ended up doing the same. He had thrown out one with the, I didn't do it with the Twins, but he had mentioned one with the Minnesota United soccer team. And I applied and I got it. And so just kind of nice. a little bit of... Congratulations. Thank you. It's been really fun because all the green teams throughout the country and depending on the team vary a lot. Most are usually volunteer. Luckily, this one is paid. So that's pretty sweet. And then most of the time, what you'll do is something relating to the waste that's generated at the stadium. So 
from what I've heard from other ones, it's often in sort of like the back end of when that trash is being thrown away. You help sort it and that kind of thing. What we do is we're more at the front end. So there's a handful of us who work every every home game. And our job is to walk around the stadium, help people figure out how to sort their waste. It's kind of a big problem. And it's it's been really interesting because I get to... I get to watch other people sort their waste because we had talked a lot about how even us as sustainability professionals, we get confused. And I really see that with every person. (laughs) And what's interesting is so like I will stand perpendicular to a trash can and there's organics, trash, recycling. And people will come up and I see that little one, two second hesitation. as And then they just throw it somewhere because they're just trying to get on with their life. And so having me there has, I've like, I've noticed is people are appreciative that I can, I watch them and I see that they're coming up and I'm like, organics, recycling, trash. And then they're like, oh, thanks, man. But <laughs> one of the problems that I am seeing is when you do have these very different types of waste streams. So things like beer cans, it's metal, people know, recycling. Although a surprising amount of people, it's still a small percentage, still will throw that in organics, which I'm like, in what world? But it, it's interesting that it's inorganics versus trash. Because, like, some people just don't recycle, so they throw everything in the trash. Like, I yeah. can get that one if you're not trained to separate. That's fine. But to throw it in organics, you're like, that's a new one. Why would you just put it? wild? You've never put it there before, right? My only guess is you are either trying to be wrong or you just see the color green and go, oh, green recycling, throw. But sometimes that color, I get you. I guess. Well, and then speaking of the color is one of the problems at the stadium has been that we have two types of cups. We have ones with blue labels on them that are recyclable. And we have ones with green labels on them that are organics. Okay. That was beforehand. Since one of the vendors has uh, implemented a third cup, which is green, but it's recyclable. And so this is that whole issue of, and it brings me back to Brianna's quote with the uh, Seattle Kraken at Climate Pledge Arena, in that the main target is to go for the vendors because the vendors are the ones bringing in all these different materials and the materials are the things that confuse people. And so the more, I think that a goal in this situation would be to have all of your cups be either organics or recycling. And that way it's it's... Because that brings so much confusion. And I mean, honestly, just my two cents for my observations, and I say this more on a slightly uneducated point, because I guess it depends on your preferences between organics and recycling. But I think a lot of people, those who are eco-conscious and care and try, just go plastic, recycling. And the problem is that those combustible, those organic plastics are not recyclable. And I think that just builds even more confusion. So it might be best to make them all recycling. But I mean, I and just the general industry needs to do more research on that. I, yeah, I think my stance on that is I'm a huge fan for when a place is all organics. So like when you have a, because we have organic plastic that is like able to be composted. Composted, yeah, not organic, sorry. When everything is compostable, it makes it so much easier because all of our, paper like bags for popcorn or the holders for your burger and fries and things like that, that can be composted. So if our cups can also be composted with that and the paper liners that go in anything can be composted, like think that's an easier solution to go all on the composting route and just put it all in one bin that way. Cause I mean, there's very little like 
trash at a stadium that would probably not be composted, maybe besides like wrappers from candy or something like that. I feel like almost everything else can essentially be composted and you can almost eliminate the recycling side of things and which kind of makes things more confusing. The only problem with that, and I kind of agree, is that organics is so those like plastic organics they require an industrial size compost facility that is heating up the materials but still a lot of major cities do not have those and so hopefully that can kind of come into place and i think that that would be good because then you're turning into some kind of soil or something else the other thing that i've been working on that's been really cool is we talked about the different stadiums and how they are built and what's the lead certifications. And so those are different levels of accreditations. Is that how you pronounce that? Yeah. Okay, cool. Don't try to make me say the other word. <laughs> okay. There's some words I cannot say. <laughs> I definitely can read that one, but yeah. <laughs> anyways, so there's different levels of lead certifications that you can get and they just indicate certain scorecards. But I have started trying to get my own lead AP Green Associate certification. And it's been really cool. I've been geeking out on it. Like I brought that workbook with me on vacation and was reading it in the airport. I was having fun because a lot of the things that you really learn about is that there is so much infrastructure that goes into place to make a building more green. And so being able to learn about the whole process and how iterative it is from start to finish and all the different types of people that you have to bring in. It's like, no wonder these types of projects take so long. But if you do it right and you do it green and you follow the lead certification, it is so, so, so much better. And it reduces your environmental impact by a ton. So one one little cool factoid, speaking of the Minnesota United soccer team, and that's something that's in the lead scorebook, is that building on what's called brownfield sites. So there's different... Location. So a brownfield site is something that's was a place that used to have like hazardous waste that in, was in the soil or was a previously highly polluted area. And so a, usually industrial and things like that. Exactly. And so one thing that you can do to earn, earn more points for building a new stadium is rather than finding a beautiful plot of farmable land, is you go into an area that is relatively decommissioned and undesirable, can't build houses there, is you invest in that plot of land and you, as part of the construction of the stadium, is you go in, you clean out that soil, you clean up that land, and then you build your stadium there. So it's rather than, you know, like I had mentioned, taking somewhere that could otherwise be used for arguably better uses, mm-hmm. you're cleaning up an area in the process of building a new stadium. So that's another cool little factoid. No, oh, that is super cool. And it's like you you have the funding mm-hmm. to clean it up way more than a residential unit or a school is ever going to have or a farmer for that fact too. Yeah, that just seems to make sense to make the big dollar stadiums pay to also clean up some of those things too and create a little healthy environment for their stadium. Well, and I guess our last topic to hit on is marine biology and conservation. I guess maybe hitting back on what we were talking about with the difficulties with legislature. Carissa talked a lot about how they're working on passing the Hawaii Green Fee, which to call back was to initiate a fee that all people traveling to Hawaii would have to pay this fee and that fee would go to protecting Hawaii's environment. Unfortunately, it did not pass. However, I did reach out to Carissa and she did email me back very quickly. Thank you, Carissa. Uh, (laughs) And 
she said that they are going to re-implement that bill next year and try to get it passed and it's going to be a continued fight. So I, I loved that idea and I really hope that they can get that passed. I think especially in the legislative world, it's never one and done. O- almost never. And the only like experience I can really call on is when it comes to school referendums when we were little. Our school, very poor, not very poor, but in a poor district and needed a lot of money to get these like portable classrooms out of there because they just were moldy and gross and like just not wanting to put kids in them, right? Could not get the money passed. Could not like raise taxes to kind of get these things in place to like keep children more safe as they're going to school. But year after year, I think it took probably three elections because it happens, I think, every couple of years at a referendum election. And three times of them just keep on saying, hey, we need it, we need it, we need it before it finally got passed and they were able to do the much needed updates to the school and kind of build a healthier environment for people. So yeah, I think legislative measures need countless effort towards it. It's just never a one and done thing. And if it is, good on you. You're very lucky. Maybe some deep pockets in there too that helped with it. But yeah, it's it's very hard to get the, like good things passed through in one time. I think that's a great point because I was having a conversation with a student recently and she had she's working on a project, an environmental project as part of her internship. And she was feeling very discouraged because she's like, I feel like this takes way more work than it needs to and it takes forever. And anyone who has entered the workforce and worked even for a minute in it can feel that. But I think it's just kind of one of those things where you really have to change your your perspective on things. There's a lot of time left for both you and I don't want to say the world because, um, you know, global warming, potential climate disasters and all that stuff. But, you know, other than that, the work... I think there's still time. There is. You, you just you just have to give hope in any way there is. And you just got to keep fighting that fight as long as you can till you get burnt out. And then hopefully you take a little rest and keep fighting again. I agree. And because, like, that's my that was my point to her was that I was like, it does take a lot longer than you think it, quote unquote, should if you ask any therapist, should is a very dangerous word, but it's it does happen and it just requires a lot of work and a lot of continued effort and a lot of continued fight. And luckily, there's a lot of good people. Hopefully, those of you listening to this podcast, the people that we talk to on this podcast, Taylor is awesome at this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, I'll get better. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, yeah, just work with other people and just stay at it. Yeah, yeah. You just, it's... It's a never-ending fight. And I think there's a lesson in life there too, right? It's not just sustainability where you have to keep fighting for yourself or for a cause you care about. There's so many out there that just need the continued motivation and effort. And find that in any way you can because motivation sometimes is fleeting. Might be this one minute and might be that the other, but that will is still there and the desire to make a positive impact is still there. You'll do good things. Just got to keep trying. Hell yeah. And I, I guess, you know, part of the quarterly update, Taylor, how have you been enjoying doing this podcast so far? We're three months in. Yeah, I, I've, I've enjoyed it a lot. It's a lot of work mm-hmm. that goes on behind the scenes, but it's a lot of fun to, to kind of really just to hear yourself, like play through your own speakers, not like a playback, but like an official edit. And, you know, on the official platform, like it really does add a lot of value when that is played in that way. So it's been 
a lot of fun and meeting all of our amazing people that we have interviewed so far. Absolutely love that. It's so here great to hear everybody's story and just learn more about their industry. Like we do our deep dives and stuff like that, but they bring so much more knowledge to the table that is just so enjoyable to sit back and listen to. So how about you? Yeah, I, I agree because the I love to continuously learn, but sometimes it's hard to like push yourself to actually do it. Right. But having this podcast and having these new guests in these new industries has really pushed me to be like, oh, I've kind of wondered how marine biology and conservation actually works. And so doing this has kind of forced me to be like, all right, let's Google it. Let's interview someone who actually knows what they're talking about. Right. And we also know what we're talking about, by the way. So I would call the episodes <laughs> intro episodes, not yes. expert level, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but yeah, and also this a podcast is way more work than I ever thought. I can see why so many people start them and stop them. Yes. But it's been rewarding. And honestly, it's one of the most, it, it's the most fun project I have going on right now. Yeah, no, it's it's fun to talk with you and it's fun to learn and it's fun to talk with everybody else. And it's fun to get feedback too. So if you're, you know, listening, we love the feedback and yeah. me and all of it helps. Yeah, no, I, it's it's been a fun ride and I'm excited to see where we take it. Yeah. And then speaking of that, I also want to shout out our producer because Taylor, you and I struggled with editing our first episodes for weeks. Was it even months? And Yeah, I think I tried three weeks and I got five minutes in. Uh-huh. And I did about the same. Like consistent effort too. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And then you're like, oh, I'll do it. And I was like, thank goodness, because I can't. Like, I'm just not getting anywhere with this. And so, yes, very much so. Shout out to Nolan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I then tried and I was like, this is horrible. I hate this. And also what I was editing sounded like trash. But then I invited a friend of mine, uh, Nolan Sawyer Watts is his name. He's also a musician as well as a podcast producer. You can find him on places like Instagram, as well as if you're looking for producing services, you can find him on Fiverr and Upwork and all those good freelance websites. Mm-hmm. He's been great. He just, we were having all those problems. I brought him on, in on it. He figured it out in half an hour. It was so easy and he's been awesome to work with. So just wanted to give him a shout out. He makes this thing exist, basically. Literally. Him, it would, I wouldn't have gotten out of editing stage. So uh-huh. thank you so much. And the amount of people that have been like, it sounds so professional. I'm like, yeah, that's that's all this guy. <laughs> Tell yes. her not show up and do our best. He makes it sound good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'll, maybe we should also shout out our uh, social media handles, which we've got. Our social media handles, you can find us as Sustainable Horizons Pod on Instagram and TikTok. And then also be sure to follow us on LinkedIn. You can just find us under Sustainable Horizons. And then we post on LinkedIn once a week, every Monday. Try to plug our our monthly topic. And then we will put out little clips on Instagram and TikTok of little clips from the show. And you get to actually see our faces there. So that's, that's pretty special. Love it. Yeah. All right. Yes. Thank you so much. This has been our first quarterly update. And I look forward for the next one because it's been fun to kind of dive back into those topics and, and learn a little bit more about them too, which is great. Yeah, me too. All right. We'll see you guys next time.